0: Well, we talked about this a few moments ago. Google, Facebook, Netflix, other major corporations, Citibank in the United States, announcing plans to require vaccines for their on-site employees. The president, Mr. Biden, the other day, suggesting federal employees could be next. And the military. So, of course, up here, the other side of the fence, Canadians from coast to coast are asking, well, could this happen in our country? Could our companies require that of us? And if so, is it even legal? So let's, uh, let's talk to a lawyer and find out more. Luke Serta joins us from Samfiru to Markin in Toronto. Mr. Serta is an employment lawyer. Luke, thanks for doing this. It's great to have you on board this weekend. Thank you, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the Canadian equivalent. We just heard from the president the other day, Mr. Biden, requiring, saying he wants to require federal employees to be vaccinated or uh, submit to a series of regular testing protocols that no one observes right now. Uh, could such a requirement be made by the Trudeau government, for example, of Canadian federal employees?
1: Well I think uh, the the challenge that Trudeau government would have is that they're they're governed by the charter so there there could be some charter arguments that um that uh, mandating vaccines especially would be uh, unconstitutional uh with respect to testing I think that's a little bit more feasible I mean we've seen a lot of testing happening you know in long term care homes Sure it's It's been happening, of course, in the sports leagues and all of that. I think testing itself is probably not as much of an issue. But vaccinations, uh, requiring vaccinations could be an issue and, and might go against uh, the charter.
0: Interesting, because, you know, uh, we've had this conversation a few times with a variety of guests, Luke, and I'm just old enough to remember uh, being a kid uh, going to school in the 1950s. And in those days, the rule was if you didn't have your polio vaccine, you simply were not allowed to go to school. We don't want those children in our schools. It's too high risk. That kind of blanket mandate for all children at age 6 or whatever it was again in 2021 Canada is not possible anymore because of the charter of rights 1982
1: right that's right i mean in 1982 the charter came into play and uh and the issue we have now is that the the government has to justify why it would make such drastic uh, uh um, kind of changes to your fundamental rights it is possible. I'm not saying that you can't vaccine, you can mandate vaccination. Mm-hmm. It's just it becomes a little bit more complicated for the government to really justify, show the courts the science, show the courts that this is the minimally intrusive uh, uh, path forward, and, and, uh, and, and, and show the courts that there are no other options but to mandate vaccinations.
0: Luke, if, the, the, I'm sorry, if that was to be the case... Uh, and and the government decided, okay, this is obviously, there's going to be a lot of court cases regarding all of this, but suppose the government decides, now, we're going to focus on one single portion of the federal employee group. We're going to talk about frontline healthcare workers. Now, if you're uh, working under a federal program and you're a healthcare provider, we're going to need you to be vaccinated because of the obvious risk uh, to both parties in anything that you do. The court's could say that's pretty solid science um way you go require vaccines for this group is that possible
1: i think it is possible i guess the point i'm making is is not that it's it's the government has no chance in court but um, you know it, it it remains to be to be shown right and i think as i was saying any any violation of your rights has to be minimally intrusive and right. that sounds more minimally minimally intrusive than mandating everyone you know Mm -hmm. the forest ranger that sees three people a month Mm -hmm. uh from getting vaccinated right so it's a frontline workers of course it's a lot more compelling because they're dealing with vulnerable people some of which might not be able to take the vaccine because of their vulnerability sure so you do want to make sure that they're uh that that they get the vaccine, absolutely. It makes a lot more sense in certain situations than others.
0: And you can understand, certainly, Luke, the public sentiment surrounding some of this. And on the one hand, you you do understand that that people have, uh, we are private citizens in a free society, and we do enjoy certain personal rights and privileges. However, there are certain public or uh, national priorities that can cause uh, individual rights to be um, put into a secondary position. And I think you're you're seeing a lot of support. We're going to talk to a pollster about this in a couple of hours. But I think there's a fairly high degree of support, Luke, across the country for some form of vaccination protocol. Do you agree? Oh,
1: well, I think definitely a lot of people in Canada were, were quite different than the United States. I think the uptake of, of the vaccine has been extraordinary. And I really uh, think that you know, Canadians could can be very proud of themselves for we're getting behind uh, the vaccine. Um, but at the same time, that's that's always the problem. It's you know individual rights and collective kind of desires are always kind of going to be in conflict, mm-hmm. and that's precisely why we have you know charters to protect uh, you know the some some minority groups in the in the in the in the, uh, in the country from from the you know <laughs> oppression of the majority essentially
0: yeah. Do, uh, do union contracts make a difference? If you're a member of a union, Luke, do you have some automatic contractual protection from these uh, whimsical requests by an employer?
1: Not really. So what happens in a union is, if, uh, of course, not, not, most of these union contracts, uh, collective bargaining agreements, were probably negotiated prior to COVID. Sure and so that wasn't really included in there i know in some uh healthcare settings the there was a requirement that you be vaccinated mm-hmm. for other diseases like the flu for instance uh so those the, what what happens in a union setting is that you can grieve that policy you can uh, the the union can say we're uh, against this policy we're going to grieve it we're going to have an arbitrator decide whether it's it's allowed or not right. and uh, of course in that context it's not whether it's uh, you know in violation of the charter but whether it's in violation of the, uh, the, the bargaining agreement, uh, we've had a couple of decisions come down from arbitrators that have held that these policies, these mandatory vaccination policies, or more likely mandatory testing policies, are within the employer's right to mm-hmm. do so. It's, you know, you might grieve it, but you might not win it, is the uh, is, is the challenge, yeah.
0: And Luke Serta is our guest. Mr. Serta is an employment lawyer with Samfiru Tomarkin in Toronto. And uh, Luke and I were talking about compulsory vaccines, as much of America is talking about it, given the fact that some of America's biggest employers, Netflix, Google, Facebook, and others, Citibank, the list does go on, and it's getting larger every day. Major United States private companies requiring their employees to be fully vaccinated or not return to work at all. Uh, Mr. Sirda and I have been talking about British Columbia, for example. And Luke, I, I wanted to zoom in because we were talking about union contracts just before we went to the to the news break. And the reason I went there was because of here in B.C., the seniors advocate and frequent guest on this program, Isabel McKenzie, is calling for mandatory vaccines for health care workers in our province. And uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry already saying she has little patience for those unvaccinated in health care. The CEO of the Care Providers Association saying, if there's no patients, there's a simple fix. Make it mandatory if you work at the staff level. It's coming to a head, Luke, and probably quite soon. How do you think it's going to play out?
1: Well, I think uh, the, uh, the, 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 the long-term care provider is correct here in saying that if, if the government wants to do this, then the government should mandate this shouldn't be left up to, to private employers to force um, their employees to get vaccinated. I think the risk they run if they do that is either grievances in a unionized environment or lawsuits in a non-unionized environment. Mm-hmm. So if the government wants to do this, the government can go ahead and pass the law, and then all the, the employer is doing is enforcing the law, which sure. is completely you know correct. But employers, employers being forced to do this on their own uh, I think is problematic and really uh, opens them to, to, to legal risk and legal exposure. So so the, I, I think, uh, you know, if if the government wants this to be done, it's uh, the ball's in their court.
0: Sure. Now, as an employment lawyer, would you be sitting there on the sidelines positively slavering for an opportunity to take the government and that mandatory uh, uh, vaccines for health care workers to court and challenge the legitimacy of the law in the first place?
1: Well, so I'm an employment lawyer, not a constitutional lawyer. I think there's plenty of constitutional lawyers that would relish the opportunity okay. to challenge, Fair to enough. challenge that, uh, that 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 law. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, I think it, it would be uh, more in, in the hands of, of of private citizens that would that would uh, basically uh, challenge the, the the right of the government to do this.
0: But you do acknowledge, of course, a tremendously high degree of public support, especially for, in this particular scenario, healthcare providers in long-term uh, healthcare facilities dealing with extremely vulnerable patients. You can appreciate the very high level of public support for the notion of compulsory vaccinations.
1: No, that's true. Uh, I mean, uh, to be frank, I mean, I was thinking about this over the break. A lot of the, the, the constitutional rights or constitutional jurisprudence that that's come from uh, the Charter has come from quite unsavory crime, uh, accused people, uh, people being accused of crimes, and I don't think the public would really be on their side in any case, hmm. in those cases, and and so it, it's 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 not because it's it's unsavory or unpopular that that the Constitution doesn't have to uh, still apply, uh, but I, I do I do take your point that it is popular, and I, in my view, I think it, it might be the right thing to do. It's just that. You know, you have to show the fact. I think if you compare us to the United States, where in some places you have less than 50% of people with even one dose, and yeah. here we are in Ontario at over 80%, mm-hmm. uh, the, the need might be different is the first thing you have to realize. I mean, if if do we really need to force vaccination to get that last 10% of people vaccinated, uh, whereas in the United States they have a full, you know, uh, half their population is unvaccinated. So if the need is not there, then maybe it's a bit drastic a measure uh, to require vaccinations by by, uh, by force of law.
0: Interesting stuff. So let's have, can we boil this down to a, a, a personal scenario, Luke? And I'm sure this happens to you more more often than you'd care to acknowledge even, but let's talk about a private employer. You're a, 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 a an employee, Uh, in a small company Uh, the small company has had you working from home for the last year and a half but we're going to get the office back up and running in September you know and by the way when you come back we need to have you fully vaccinated or don't bother so then what you went a small company private company the boss I guess is, is my outfit I get to say and lay down whatever rules I want that's the rule you're the employee what do you do Luke
1: well, I think uh, if, uh, if an employee, and employees have consulted us on this kind of thing. I'm sure. Uh, um, you know, the, the employer is really opening themselves up to a lot of risk. I mean, essentially, if the employee is willing to work and the employer won't employ them, then the employer generally will owe the person a severance package okay. unless they can terminate them for cause. And I just don't think that refusing to get a vaccine is just cause for dismissal. So, I mean, the, 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 it's, a, it's a tough choice for everyone, but if you're going to sever that employment relationship, then a severance, uh, severance package needs to go towards the employee. So so I think that, uh, as I was saying before, going out on your own like this as an employer does kind of create a lot of legal exposure mm-hmm. for you. And severance packages, uh, you know, can be up to 24 months, right? So that's a lot of money. Uh, so so you've got to got kind of, to kind of wonder how how badly you want this as an
0: employee. Right, because the risk is that if if you if you don't get the level of cooperation, suppose your employees surprise you and say, "Well, actually, boss, no." Uh, then you got to replace a staff and that and plus uh, give give severance to those who are leaving. That could have been a very expensive decision.
1: I think it can be, exactly. So I encourage employers who are listening to tread lightly. Uh, and, and wait to be ordered by the government. And like that, the exposure, the legal exposure shifts to the government where I think it should be and away from employers.
0: So that's kind of what I'm hearing, Luke, from employment, employment lawyers and professionals like yourselves because we have – it's still so up in the air. We, there are very few mandatory situations existing right now, although, although they're certainly being contemplated across the country. But the, the word, the advice is that I'm hearing, just cool it. Just wait and see. Nobody has to make any initial dramatic moves here unless you've got all the money in the world and and, uh, have no fear of risk. Otherwise, just wait and and things will become clearer going forward. Is that still the advice you're giving to your clients?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, uh, when you're overzealous like this, it it can, you know, uh, end up costing you quite a bit. So I, I think what, what employers think they're allowed to do compared to what courts think employers can do is two very different things. Sure, A lot of employers learn that, unfortunately, the hard way at the end of a lawsuit. So definitely I would, I would, I would tread lightly here.
0: And as an employee um, listening this morning, In a workplace where, let's just say, um, huge hints are being dropped about, you know, we don't want to, we don't, we've certainly got anything in writing here. But let's just say, you know, when we think that this this ship back on its keel and starts sailing into the sunset, we want everybody on board vaccinated. So, you know, no, uh, no mandatory anything. But, you know, the hints are about as big as a barn door and you know it's coming. So in that kind of environment, how do you prepare yourself?
1: Well, as an employee, you want to uh, you want to consult a lawyer as quickly as possible because the hints can go from you know quite uh, anodyne to to quite serious. Uh, for instance, uh, you know they're, they're, they might ramp up the testing that you have to do and, and, and make you pay for the testing and things of that nature, which at some point might you know cross a cross a threshold into really just being punitive measures mm-hmm. for not having gotten the vaccine, right? And in that case, I would probably not be appropriate and might entitle you once again to a severance package.
0: Interesting stuff. Well, of course, this is uh, we're, we're almost a little bit ahead of ourselves, Luke, but it's so cool to have you with us on this long weekend, particularly, because the, they have taken a step in the United States that we have not yet and and so now we watch this step being taken and doubtless there will be hundreds if not thousands of court cases as a result of it but nonetheless they've committed to it these big companies and big employers so with this sort of buzz coming across the border this weekend it's great to have you with us to just sort of give us the real canadian perspective on this because it's all american this weekend isn't it
1: yes exactly and i actually uh you know, uh, Google made the news for for enforcing uh, forcing its uh, American employees to uh, be vaccinated. What's important to note, though, is that they don't seem to have yet done that in Canada. Exactly. And the, there are different there are different laws that apply to employees in Canada and the United States. Namely, you, know, you don't get a severance package if you're terminated in the United States in the normal course of things. So they might realize, even Google might realize that, you know, this is probably not workable in every jurisdiction that we operate in. Uh, We'll start in the United States, but we'll see if we expand this everywhere.
0: Indeed. Luke Serta, thanks so much for this. Great to have you on board. I really enjoyed our conversation and look forward to the opportunity to have another one soon. Just great of you to join us. My pleasure, certainly. Mr. Holman is a well-known British Columbia reporter of great reputation for many years who has now gone to the dark side, friends. Yes, he's teaching journalism at Mount Royal University in Calgary after a stint doing the same at the University of Victoria. Sean Holman, always a pleasure. Good morning.
2: Good morning, Sterling. It's great to be here, and thanks so much for having me to discuss this really important subject.
0: Well, okay, and I know the important subject, and this has been a a real bee in your bonnet for many years, the whole matter of the media and citizen access to freedom of information. And, Sean, I want to give you lots of time to talk about this, but first we need to take a couple of moments, my friend, for you to give us back here in your former home province a bit of an Alberta update, if you wouldn't mind please, Sean, because this morning we're seeing numbers where if the election were held today, Jason Kenney would lose. He would get his clock cleaned by the NDP. He's even losing in Calgary right now, which is unnatural. What's going on with the Kenney administration? Is he so far off the rails, he's not going to be able to come back?
2: I think it's difficult to say what will actually happen in the next provincial election in Alberta. And I say that because this is still a very conservative province. This is still a very right-leaning province. And part of Kenny's problem as premier is he's sort of caught between the extremely conservative individuals of Alberta and his caucus on one side and the people who want a more evidence-based response to the pandemic among other issues, on the other. So I I think that's partly the result. uh, That's partly what we can
0: attribute his current unpopularity to. Okay, and and it's not uh, at all helped by a couple of recent decisions, one of which uh, shocked Canadians, frankly, Sean, in every corner of the country, uh, as we're talking about a renegotiation of the contract of Alberta nurses who have just put the people of the province, uh, handled them tenderly and mercifully through the pandemic, and their reward would be a 3% wage reduction. That was a bit of a blow. And then there's also the matter of this re- Lim- uh, r- restriction uh, r- elimination. Now, the doctors of Alberta are getting their backs up because there too much has happened too quickly. Tell us about what's happened in just the last couple of days uh, in terms of individual restrictions being removed, qu- quarantines, those yeah, sorts of things.
2: Yeah, that's right. So this was a, a decision that I think shocked uh, a lot of Albertans. And basically, uh, what the government has decided is That it is removing various different restrictions related to COVID 19 in Alberta. And Mm -hmm. those restrictions include quarantining if uh, you've been in contact with uh, an individual, if you are um exposed or have uh, COVID, um, and also a, a cessation of, of the testing requirements, which will really make it difficult to know exactly what is going on on the ground when it comes to COVID in Alberta. And and really, Sterling, what's kind of interesting about this is uh, this is really the conservative playbook right now yes. uh, in action uh, in a lot of ways. Um, the conservative movement, as you know, Sterling, was previously really defined by It's a preference towards austerity budgeting, Mm -hmm. Um, the idea that the state was too big, so therefore the state should do less. So that's been part of conservative ideology for a very long time. But the other thing that sort of has also come into vogue within the conservative movement is a rejection of evidence, a rejection of facts. And we can see that in terms of their policies related to climate change. And we can see that in terms of their policies related to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And both of these forces are coming together when it comes to the United Conservative Party's policies, both as it relates to the size of government in Alberta and as it relates to their handling of COVID and climate change. Mm-hmm. So that's what you're really seeing with the government uh, in, in Alberta. The UCP is really an a excellent example of two strands of modern
0: conservatism in action. So it's uh, and, and there you go. And, and you're absolutely right. So then as we uh, take a look at the, the polling and those sorts of facts, uh, what's to be made of the separatist sentiment in Alberta? Is this exacerbating that, giving them more fuel uh, to work with? Or, in fact, is this causing people to go, well, <laughs> that's not going to help.
2: What, what's the reaction there? That's really interesting. I I think that is actually part of the rejection of evidence that we're seeing in the conservative movement. This isn't a a really especially (laughs) good idea to separate from Canada, especially at a time when the oil and gas economy is basically on its last legs, whether or not the UCP wants it that way or Mm. not. Um, So um, it's sort of being driven by this uh, very evidence Uh, movement, right, that we should get away from Canada, that Alberta should separate. Um, And I think this is all, again, sort of really core to a lot of what conservative ideology is all about these days. So this isn't necessarily whether or not it's a a good idea. Um, This is what the base wants. Um, and I would also argue that uh, a large portion of what Kenny is doing in Alberta is also consistent with his belief that demographics is destiny. So, you know, he's underfunding, for example, uh, universities. Mm-hmm. Well, we statistically know that the UCP does not draw its support in Alberta from university graduates. So this is a lot. This is about in a lot of ways about shoring up the conservative movement in Alberta Hmm. and creating the conditions, right, that will see the perpetuation of right-wing governments
0: um, in this province. Interesting stuff. Very patient of you, Mr. Holman, this morning to uh, uh, indulge my uh, desires to understand a little bit more about what's going on in Alberta. After all, you are the next-door neighbors, and it's, (laughs) it's always, always such a colorful situation. Now, the The reason that you you and I have agreed to talk here this morning is about this freedom of information business, uh, specifically referring to Ian Stewart, the Public Health Agency of Canada head. And I'm Sterling Fox, joined by Sean Holman, former British Columbia legislative reporter in Victoria, now journalism professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Sean, I'm going to read the first sentence to an article on the internet story that includes comments from you, and I'll let you take it from there. Here we go. A requester seeking access to a week's worth of emails and messages from the head of a federal agency embroiled in a controversy has been told to wait five years or more for a response under Canada's information law. Go ahead. Take it away, Sean.
2: Yeah, this is really troubling. So at issue is a request for a week's worth of emails and text messages from the head of the Public Health Agency of Canada. And the reason why these emails are at issue, the reason for curiosity uh, about Ian Stewart's messages, is the fact that currently um, there are questions as to why the Public Health Agency of Canada fired two doctors. Mm -hmm. Those have been swirling around for quite some time. And this is really one of the absolutely worst situations of delay, denying access that I've seen as a freedom of information researcher. We do see these kinds of situations crop up on a fairly regular basis. But five years for a week's worth of text messages and emails is just beyond the pale. There's no reason why anyone should be
0: waiting that long. And it's also important to remind our listeners early on a Sunday morning that the individual we're talking about, Ian Stewart, the president of the Public Health Agency of Canada, is the same individual called to the bar of the House of Commons and was rebuked by the Speaker of the House, for his attitude towards requests by the House for e- evidence and information. So here's an yeah, uncooperative, un- uncooperative individual who, by the way, is being defended by the Prime Minister in the, in the, under the uh, guise of national security. This is, again, about the two doctors in Winnipeg, the two uh, medical uh, ph- pharmaceutical researchers in Winnipeg who resigned under, shall we say, suspicious circumstances.
2: That's exactly right, and I think it is really important to note that the government is defending and supporting uh, Ian Stewart in this particular circumstance. This is a government that promised an open-by-default administration, and promised Canadians that the secrecy of the Harper administration would end with them. And what we've seen is that the Liberals have continued uh, the secrecy of the Harper administration, have continued the secrecy that has been part of Canadian government for a very, very long time, and have done really very little to actually open up the corridors of power to average Canadians. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is all about. We nominally, Sterling, as you know, have an Access to Information Act that's supposed to allow us to get access to records that the government doesn't voluntarily disclose, Mm -hmm. sort of end the government's discretionary power. And that came into force back in 1983. But the fact of the matter is that legislation is extremely deficient. There are so many loopholes you can basically float the Goodyear blimp through them. Uh, in terms of government's ability to refuse access to records. And that's the way the legislation was designed.
0: Well, of course, it was written by people who really didn't want to cooperate in the first place, so they gave themselves lots of outs. That's right. It was written by the first
2: Trudeau government, in fact. Um, and this is, a, this is a problem that is on both the left and the right in Canada and the center in Canada. No matter what government is in power, they don't want to give up access to their records. And we live in one of the most
0: secretive democracies, Sterling, um, in the world. Well, I suppose it's also important to consider that the prime minister is currently trying to very much get an election that we don't need and very few of us actually want. So what's that all about? It's about power. It's about getting a majority. If they're being uncooperative in a minority situation, what on earth would they be like, given a majority, Sean?
2: Absolutely. And let's be clear, this is part and parcel of the secrecy that exists in Canada. Because if you have a majority government then you basically have in Canada the power to do whatever you want exactly. thanks to party discipline. Mm-hmm. And thanks to party discipline, people don't speak honestly about what exactly is going on inside the government, increasing the secrecy of that government. So this, in some ways, uh, Sterling, unfortunately, should be a uh, Uh, election that is a referendum on how much democracy do you really want in Canada? Because right now, under a minority situation, we have more democracy than we usually do.
0: Well, that's right. And I can remember, and this goes back many years now, to a NATO meeting in Belgium with Jean Chrétien speaking with Bill Clinton uh, over an open mic that he didn't realize was open, bragging essentially about how he, uh, the prime minister, the head of a majority government in Canadian parliament, actually had more personal power than the president of the United States by far absolutely and that's something
2: we as Canadians really have not grappled with really have not recognized and strangely Canadians keep on rejecting electoral reform which is one way of sort of restraining that power. We really need to do something about the lack of democracy and the lack of transparency in this country, because when people feel that the government has all the power, they feel out of control. Where do the courts... Um,
0: Sorry, Sean, where do the courts come in here? Uh, Because, uh, you know, we've got uh, the government giving us the runaround, hiding behind national security issues and so on. Delay, delay, delay. Oh, we're having an election. We couldn't possibly do anything now uh, for for another year. So can the courts step in and go, uh, let's see these documents now?
2: Um, They can. Um, So the way it would work is the information commissioner would first take a shot at the documents and make a ruling. And then if the government decides to disagree with that, or if the requester decides to disagree with that ruling, it could make its way to the court. Gotcha. The challenge, of course, is that all takes a lot of time. And in the past, the courts actually haven't been that favorable towards freedom of information because... Because, well, in some circumstances, they're pretty secretive, too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We
2: don't have a lot of openness in this country, and that really frustrates both democracy
0: and the work that we do as journalists, really. Individual and journalists, indeed. Uh, here's our a buzz line question this morning, Professor Holman. Do you think the media is unbiased, or is there an agenda? Your take, please.
2: <laughs> well, um, I would argue that it doesn't, really, I think we misunderstand what journalism is. Journalism should be a process. And in that process, we look at all of the information and arrive at what exactly the truth or our best approximation of the truth is. It's a process. It's a process, right? So these things about, you know, unbiased or, you know, objectivity, that sort of thing, don't really matter. What matters is whether or not we're actually following a good process, because right. everyone has some degree of bias. All right, I leave it Are there, we following Sean. Following a good process.
0: Uh, lots of Canadians right now having some financial struggles, living paycheck to paycheck, facing affordability and debt challenges. When it's something that happens, that's out of the control, like the pandemic we're going through. It can certainly negatively impact finances and the credit score. So, how does one go about rebuilding that all-important credit? score here to give us a few tips and point us in the right direction is jennifer mccracken always a pleasure to have jennifer on the program she's a senior vice president and licensed insolvency trustee with bdo first call debt solutions jennifer good morning welcome back good morning sterling so let's talk a little bit about this credit score how important is it for example for everyone listening right now to know what their credit score is
3: well, there's a few things, Sterling. I think uh, it's important for people to understand what is the credit score measuring, right? So the credit score um, for Canadians, it falls on a scale uh, from 300 up to 900. Okay. And really, it's just a three-digit measure of um, how you use credit, and it measures the risk of default. So if you are applying for credit, if you're renewing a mortgage, if someone's assessing whether or not they're going to lend money to you, mm-hmm. your credit score is going to be factored in into to you know, what rates you get, whether they want to lend. To you, and so we. I certainly encourage folks that are actively reviewing their credit reports and um, that are really taking stock of their financial life. They should have some awareness of what their credit score is. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that it, it is um, it, the funny thing about the credit score is that you know there's two bureaus in Canada, so Equifax and TransUnion. Okay. Your credit score will not be the same at each bureau. Oh, so really? There's certain things. Yeah, yeah. There's certain things that. Um, it's factored in t- into the the, the measure it, the measurement. There's going to be an analysis of your credit report, but each bureau does it slightly differently. So you do want to make sure you check it at both bureaus because you never know which bureau a lender is going to use if they're assessing you sure. for credit.
0: Is it also possible that, uh, you know, talking about uh, the sorts of situations where your credit score uh, may be uh, checked by someone, uh, It's it's not... Uh, inconceivable that if you're a renter or applying to rent a property, an apartment or something, your credit score could be checked. And certainly in some employment situations, employers are not beyond checking credit scores. So it really does matter, doesn't it?
3: It does, and actually you raise a very good point there because there's different types of inquiries on your file, so a hard credit check, a hard inquiry will impact your credit score and it will actually show up, there will be a history of all the inquiries on your credit file. So something more like a soft credit check, something from your employer, you're just ac- allowing someone access to review the credit report, they're still going to have a look at your credit report. Um, if they're doing a soft credit check though, they won't see your actual credit score, but certainly they will be able to have so some information available to them like your, your payment history, your credit history. And so Mm. it is important to understand, you know, who has access to my credit report? Um, Do I have to give them authorization? And if you are giving them authorization, really think through, is this going to impact my credit score down the road?
0: Jennifer, what's the difference between credit score and credit rating? Well, that's a great
3: question because your credit rating basically refers to how you've used the credit accounts that are available to you. So that's on a scale of one to nine. So one being you've paid on time as due, uh, nine at the other end being it's in collection, it's bad debt. So any uh, credit account that you have, whether it's secured like a mortgage, it could be a revolving credit account, or any kind of term loan, they are going to report, are you making your payments as agreed to? Are you paying those on time? So that credit history will be reviewed, and it it actually does, that payment history actually does impact your credit score. So it is part of that algorithm, that calculation. Um, The credit score, though, um, is, is different from that. So the credit score is actually factoring in Uh, certain things in measuring on that scale of 300 to 900, where are you within that range, right? So a a good credit score would be anything from 660 up to 900. Okay. A fair credit score is anything below 660. And so your credit score is actually going to be factoring in what is the payment history? um, How much credit have you utilized? Are you bumping up to your credit limits and have you overused the credit that's extended to you? Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to factor in your payment history and the credit inquiries, which I was talking about about, and certainly the public record side. So if somebody has judgments, uh, history of bankruptcy or proposal, that will, you know, bring down your credit score as well. So all those things are factored into the credit score. So that that would be the difference between those two. Oh,
0: okay. Uh, and uh, if a person, uh, you know, coming out of this pandemic, as we all hope we are, and, uh, you know, getting the vaccine and getting maybe back into some kind of employment situation, it's time to start rebuilding that uh, that roughed-up credit score that you've been struggling with for the last 18 months, and a lot of us have been. So, Jennifer, how does one begin to rebuild one's credit?
3: Well, the first thing you want to do is obtain a copy of your report. I certainly recommend folks do it at least once a year. So review the report, analyze, you know, are there any errors, are there problems, are there things that need to be corrected? Also, you know, be honest with yourself. You know, what are the trouble spots? What are the challenges? Am I routinely paying certain bills late, um, what can I do to fix that? Do I need to set up automated payments? So mm-hmm. you do want to go through and sort of read through and analyze for yourself what you're seeing on your credit report. Um, certainly, any accounts that are behind, you do want to make efforts to bring that up to date. So contact the company, make arrangements to pay it. If you're over a credit limit on any account, bring it down. It's, it's not wise to have your, your credit extended beyond the credit limit that's been granted to you. That will definitely impact your credit rating. Um, pay off debts, if, if at all possible. Get on a plan to pay off uh, any credit accounts that are, are causing problems on your credit file. Uh, one thing a lot of my clients do is they actually obtain something called a secured credit card. So that's just where you put a cash deposit down as collateral. right? And it, it just covers the lender off, right? If you default at a later date, they're covered for the amount that they've lent you. you. So but in the
0: meantime, you can, you can do transactions and things, right?
3: Exactly. You can use it. So, a lot of my clients do it um, at, if, and when they're actively in insolvency proceeding or if it's a way to reestablish. And so, it's, the secure credit card is one tried and true way to reestablish your credit because what you want to do is demonstrate a new credit history. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to show that you're able to use the credit that's available. You know, Keep in mind, the, the credit score really just measures the risk of default, right? So, you want to demonstrate that you're able to use the credit that's available to you, paid on time, and that secure credit card is one Um, really important step. The other one that, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but the other one that I always advise my clients on is paying your utilities, your mobile uh, bills, all those things on time, right? So uh, making sure that you have a plan in place that you pay those things on time. You don't, the last thing you need is a negative notation because you've, a a phone bill's gone into arrears. Like that, that is such a simple way to avoid any kind of negative uh, marks uh, that will bring down your credit score.
0: Indeed. Uh, Now, of course, there are those who are going to find themselves so far be behind the eight ball in terms of sorting out their personal finances, they're going to have to take uh, some, some important measures and sit down with a, a licensed insolvency trustee like yourself and talk about uh, either something like a, 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 a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Uh, and 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 of course, the concern is, well, if I go to, to that route, boy, my, my credit record is going to be in real terrible shape for a long time, it's probably already in pretty terrible shape if you're considering that, isn't it?
3: Well, you make a very good point, Sterling, because um, there's a few things. I have a segment of my clients that actually enter having a very strong credit score. And again, going back to the fact that we know the credit score just measures, are you paying your bills on time? Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, they're meeting their minimum payments. They've never missed a minimum payment before they've entered into a proposal or bankruptcy. So TransUnion, um, a few years ago, called this the surprise bankruptcy. So strong credit score, and then the person uh, does a bankruptcy. So there's that segment for sure in my client's. But you're correct. For a good portion of the people that I work with, they're at the poor end, or, you know, fair end of the range. So their credit score is probably below 560. Sure. It's already low. And the reality is doing a proposal or bankruptcy actually is a concerted first step into getting those notations off the file. It actually gives a time frame because, of course, the time frame that things are reported on credit file are all based on provincial rules. Sure. It actually becomes a, a, a legitimately um, good process for somebody to get those notations off the file and reestablish their credit. The other thing I like to talk to my clients about though is that reestablishing credit um, and, and building out your credit score is something that takes time, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen overnight. So doing an insolvency proceeding to deal with any debt that's, that's not manageable, to gain those skills, we do counseling sessions, to build out your budgeting, um, you need that time anyway. And so it, it, it actually becomes a great first step to get a discharge of debt and really learn those skills to reestablish and rebuild your credit.
0: Interesting stuff. A Final question to you. You mentioned how important it is for every person to check his or her credit rating at least once a year with one of the two rating services, Equifax or TransUnion. How much does that check cost, Jennifer?
3: Well, you can do it for free by mail uh, once a year. So that's always a great way to do it. Uh, the other option would be to do it online. There typically is a fee. It's going to be based on each bureau, or you can actually sign on to a membership or you have enhanced services. So uh, depending on you know what, what the preference is for uh, Canadians, um, you can either just get it for free by mail or do the online route and um, have a bit more of an enhanced um, access to your credit file.
0: All right. But knowledge is power, and uh, that helps a whole lot. And you really do need to have, an understanding of where you are if you want to make things better, right?
3: Yes, absolutely. So I always say that to my clients. Is, you, know, you don't want to be walking into a bank or a, a situation where you haven't checked your credit, you haven't looked at it, you don't have any idea of your credit score. Um, you're really not going to be in a situation where you know, the outcome is going to be unknown. Um, you want to go in and get the best result possible. So if these things are available to you, these resources are available to you, you should use it because you're going to only get a better outcome by being informed and being proactive in your financial life.
0: Do appreciate your positive attitude, Jennifer. You always have practical, real-world solutions to real problems. We do appreciate your taking a bit of time out of your long weekend to share some of these tips with us. Always a treat. Thanks. Thank you, Sterling. Mario, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you. Good to have you with us on the BC day-long weekend. You've taken a poll. You were commissioned for one by Glacier Media. And you wanted to talk about multiculturalism and came up with the finding, at least the headline says, almost half of Canadians think Canada should be a mosaic. Tell us more, please.
4: Well, we've been asking this question for the past three years, uh, trying to figure out how Canadians are reacting to the idea of the country being more multicultural and the way in which we should be welcoming newcomers into Canadian society. And we see this year a little bit of a shift. You know, we had almost like a 50-50 split when it came to the way people looked at the country. And now we have a, a significantly higher number of Canadians who believe that we should be a mosaic, that we should be a place where cultural differences within society are considered
0: valuable and should be preserved. Mm-hmm. And and uh, this, of course, it's, it's interesting because it was called multiculturalism back in the 80s and the 90s, and it appears to be that that term is uh, enjoying a certain revival as well. Is that deliberate, Mario?
4: Well, I think it's a combination of factors. Uh, we have seen... Certainly a change in the way multiculturalism is described after the Liberal Party came back to power in 2015 under Justin Trudeau. I think there was a moment when the conservatives were in power where we didn't really talk a lot about multiculturalism. Conservative uh, politicians and bureaucrats uh, looked at multiculturalism as a legacy of the Pierre Trudeau era that that they didn't really want to talk about that much Mm -hmm. or to defend necessarily. And now that we've had the Liberals back in power, I think it certainly led to larger discussions about what to do. Um, also discussions related to the way in which immigration policies should be working. It's, it's very difficult to implement because of the COVID-19 pandemic and Indeed. the complications uh, for universities or for, or for family re- reunification. Um, but it's definitely something that is handled differently when the Liberals are in power in Ottawa than when the Conservatives call
0: the shots. Right, and of course, and we're hearing from the Liberals that uh, indeed, if uh, if all things being equal, they do plan to increase the immigration quotas for the, uh, the foreseeable future in order to somewhat balance off the fact that we've had basically a year and a half of no immigration intake whatsoever. So that the plan is at least on the table.
4: Yes, and it's definitely something that is necessary uh, when you look at some of the trends that we've had, uh, we've also had a, a, a COVID-19 pandemic that um, literally changed a lot of minds when it came to people who maybe were thinking about starting a family. So uh, the growth in, in the Canadian population hasn't been what it used to be, partly because of immigration, partly because people aren't having kids as 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 much as they used to before COVID-19 was something we had to deal with. Um, there's an expectation that these numbers are, are going to look a lot like they did back in 2019 but we will still have to wait and see
0: interesting now when you do these polls mario you always start here in bc your home turf but you reach out and you talk to canadians in every corner of the country when you talk about multiculturalism to all canadians in all parts of the country are there any parts of the country more or less responsive to the notion than others
4: Well, the place where the numbers are highest is indeed British Columbia. We have 81% of British Columbians who believe that multiculturalism has been good for the country. This is higher than the national average of 73%. Um, There are some areas where the numbers are lower, but what is really quite interesting about this particular question is, there's no area of the country that is that set against this. Mm-hmm. You know, the numbers are a little bit lower in Saskatchewan and Manitoba at 69 percent, but there's only 16 percent of residents of these two Perry provinces um, who believe that multiculturalism has been bad. So in that essence, um, the numbers are definitely higher, and, and there's a, a, certainly a level of support. Uh, that goes across regions, across age groups, and also across political allegiances. You know, conservatives who tend to be more critical of multiculturalism, 66% of them say that they welcome it.
0: Interesting stuff. And in this survey as well, this National Survey on Multiculturalism, you also touched on racial issues. And of course, it has been quite a year for these matters for all Canadians. What did you find?
4: Well, we asked the question about race relations in the country, and at this particular point, uh, the public is split. We have 40% of Canadians who believe that they have improved over the past couple of years, and 38% who say they have worsened. Um, We've had so many different instances to be quite upset at certain aspects of life that have been happening. We saw uh, all of those um, instances where people of um, Asian heritage were um, essentially not happy with the way they were treated mm. during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, um, We've also had uh, a couple of, of devastating reports related to how people of First Nations descent are treated in hospitals. Um, it's understandable for the numbers to be where they are right now, because it's not as if we've had a fantastic year to celebrate how things were going. And I think this is one of the reasons for the numbers to be where they are. Um, it just hasn't been a great couple of years when it comes to race relations.
0: Hmm. Um, so, and because of that, then you get this split on how we feel about where we are at this weekend, for example, right?
4: Yes, and you know one of the things that is quite eye catching about the numbers, and this is something that we always try to do when it comes to issues related to race. You know, we we look at the way people feel about things by ethnicity and. What we see here is that the changes uh, are coming from other uh, areas of of, of canada 's society. We only have thirty four percent of people of European descent who believe that the uh, that race relations have improved, but it goes to up to fifty three percent with those of first nations descent mm. so uh, what 's interesting about this is the ones who are saying that race relations aren 't really going that well are the ones of European descent. Um, people of other ethnicities are looking at the situation in a certainly more positive way than those who are European.
0: Interesting stuff. Mr. Kenseko. a question for you, if you wouldn't mind. It's uh, open to our listeners this morning on the BuzzLine. Do you think the media is unbiased, or is there an agenda?
4: <laughs> I don't think there's an agenda. I think part of the situation that we're facing now is that um, there's groups that are looking into specific sources of information that are telling them what they want to hear. We see that a lot on social media, and I think there's a good explanation for it uh, in the United States, particularly the way Donald Trump became president by consistently saying things that were not true, but finding people who were able to look at those things and believe that they were.
0: Interesting stuff. Mario Canseco, always a pleasure to have you spend a few moments taking the pulse of the nation on the weekends with us. We do appreciate your time, especially on the BC Day long weekend. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Joined on the line by... Kyla Lee. Ms. Lee is a criminal defense lawyer with the Acumen Law Group, here to talk about a recent decision by the B.C. Appeals Court about cell phones and distracted driving. Kyla Lee, good morning. Good
5: morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me. Oh,
0: it's good to have you with us. We appreciate you giving us a little bit of time on a long weekend. Uh, It turns out the appeals court actually went to three different dictionaries to check the definition of the word hold as uh, as it pertained to this court. The guy got pulled over. And the cop who pulled him over said he spotted the driver looking down behind the wheel. He's walking up to the car. He sees a cell phone in his lap and writes up a ticket. The the driver says, wasn't in my lap. It was uh, lodged between my leg and the side of the seat. Take it from there.
5: Well, the argument at trial was effectively that uh, because he wasn't holding the phone in his hand, Mm -hmm. um, but that he just had it wedged between his leg and the seat as his position went, uh, that he wasn't committing a violation of the Motor Vehicle Act, because the act prohibits using a cell phone if you're holding it. But if you're not holding it, then he said, you know, he should be acquitted. The court had to look at what the definition of hold actually means. Right. What does it mean to hold something? And they found that holding something includes putting it on your lap or wedging it between your leg and the seat.
0: But the interesting part about this, Kyla. I suppose is this was the, I, as I understand it, this was the third trial that this individual had gone through. Had been and, and, and uh, the previous two occasions, this investigation into the the true meaning of the word "hold" hadn't been pursued. Why do you think it was at the at the appeals level? It was determined that that mattered a great deal. The
5: issue that arose at the other two levels of court was more about the dispute in the evidence, um, whether or not the phone was on the lap versus wedged between his leg and his uh-huh. seat. Okay. And the courts focused more on you know whose version of events was true, which the Court of Appeal found to be an error, because it didn't really matter in the end whose version of events was true, because either action would amount to holding based on the common sense and dictionary definition in three dictionaries for that word.
0: So the officer who issued the citation in the first place because he saw the driver of the vehicle looking down while behind the wheel was onto something.
5: He was onto something. And, uh, you know, it does make sense because the, the point of the law, of course, is to keep people from being distracted sure. and to make sure that they're capable of safely operating the vehicle. Having a phone on your lap or under your leg does pose a minimal, but still some risk, uh, both of distracting you by taking your eyes off the road, but also of the phone coming loose from the position in which you're holding it and, you know, preventing you from adequately using the brake or operating the vehicle safely.
0: Ah, okay. So now, What implication does this have for drivers that we don't already completely understand?
5: Well, the the implication here is it's yet another example from the court of uh, how vague the cell phone legislation has been drafted mm-hmm. in DC, and the way that it requires three levels of court to interpret the law before we get some clarity on what we can and can't do with our cell phones in our cars.
0: Well, as a criminal defense attorney, this is sort of this is grist for your mill, because it, it, if it took three levels of court to finally det- determine uh, an appropriate definition of, of a word, it would suggest the ambiguity in the law continues, and there's going to be a lot more clients coming your way. Going, I don't think uh, I don't think I'm guilty here.
5: Oh yes, this is definitely just you know another example of, of many many arguments we're going to have about what is actually holding. You know, if you put your phone in your shirt pocket now, is that holding? Is that securely affixed to your person? What is you know what is the 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 sort of endpoint of where holding? ends and securely affixing something to your your person which is allowed begins there there's so much more that we don't know about this legislation and it really suggests that the government should change the legislation and should draft it better in a way that's easier for everybody to understand
0: particularly kyla when when you're talking about the number of devices available at any corner store for any person to put in their vehicle to hold the phone in such a way as to make it easy to see while you're driving (laughs) I mean, all of that. So they cost anything from 10 bucks or less. I mean, you can buy them anywhere. So uh, and more of us are doing that because it's easy and it's easy to see. So if you have one of those things in a cup holder that holds your phone so you can see it, uh, is that and, and you get stopped, is that are you guilty?
5: not if your phone is in in the cup holder, even without a holder, or it's in a mount in the cup holder or against a vent, or it's sitting on the passenger seat. None of those things constitute using the phone. Okay. There has to be a, a physical action associated with the phone for there to be use. Um, that being said, watching the screen of the device while you're driving does amount to using an electronic device. Now, whether watching is a brief glance, or whether it's like watching a YouTube video that mm-hmm. you have playing while you're driving,
0: We yeah, right. you don't
5: have clarity on that.
0: Interesting. And, and uh, we don't have there are there still isn't enough or or aren't enough legal precedents to be able to go well in that example that that would work and it wouldn't in this case there just isn't enough law yet
5: there isn't enough law, and that's really troubling. You know, for the government to pass the legislation about electronic devices while driving and to make it so unclear that we have to have all of these cases going to all these different levels of court to determine what the government actually meant, yeah. it's unfair to drivers. Because, you know, this individual who went through this case has spent probably thousands of dollars pursuing this issue, more probably. than the cost of the ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, Only to be unsuccessful because the legislation was so ambiguously drafted that he couldn't discern its actual meaning.
0: Just out of curiosity, what's the ticket tab for being a distracted driver caught with your phone in your lap? $368
5: plus four penalty points and mandatory insurance increases.
0: Interesting. So it's not uh, without consequence at all.
5: No, it's a very hefty ticket.
0: And do most people fight or do they just acquiesce, pay the fine, take the hit and walk on?
5: I think with cell phones, a lot of people fight it just because the consequences are so high and because the law is so unclear that they honestly believe that they're in the right. I mean, it's very few of my clients that I'm dealing with cell phone cases are people who are driving with the phone to their ears sure. or actively texting while in motion in the car. Right. People who glance at it are red lights, people who have it, you know, I've had lots of cup holder and passenger seat cases, people who have it wedged like Mr. Rajani did. Um, there's all sorts of these examples that I deal with. And most of them aren't people who are, you know, deliberately doing the wrong thing.
1: Hmm.
0: Interesting stuff. Well, I appreciate your time this morning just to clarify that, because again, you know, uh, any clarification helps. You're absolutely correct. The ambiguity surrounding all of this is frustrating. It's annoying and frankly unfair. So anything we can do to help clear the air a little bit is probably to anyone's benefit. And for that this morning, Kyla, I am grateful.
5: Thank you for having me.